Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Liberty Church's online audio worship service for Sunday, March 29th, 2020. During this time of suspended services, our announcements have also been very streamlined, but I did want to mention to you that for next Sunday for our audio worship service, we will celebrate communion. We will have the Lord's Supper, and so we encourage you to prepare for that this week. We encourage you to get the bread, the wine for communion somehow. Uh, cobble those elements together, what you can use. Even though we're not together, we look forward to sharing in the Lord's Supper for Palm Sunday, April 5th. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 13, and Tom Black will come and read. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. One excruciating part of suffering is not knowing when it will end. It's like getting a shot at the dentist. The needles are long, the insertion is slow, and the relief takes a while, and it's like the worst thing ever. Psalm 13 answers the question, how long do I have to go through this? This psalm has only six verses, and it divides very neatly into three groups, which is great for pastors. We just love that. Verses 1 and 2 discuss the hiddenness of God. Four times he asks, how long? How long will you forget me? Forever? He's asking God with the assumption that you have forgotten me. You are no longer interacting with me. You have abandoned me. And he's saying, how long is that going to go on? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide from me? That's why I call this the hiddenness of God, which is a, a topic in debates about God uh, all across the board. But sometimes it does seem like God is very hidden from our hearts. How long will I struggle in my thoughts or take counsel in my soul? So in verse 2, he's saying, I have troubled thoughts. I have troubled feelings. Namely, I have sorrow in my heart daily. So it's this is going on for day day after day, and it's a sorrow. He says, I've got an enemy, and how long will the enemy have the upper hand? But in these four how longs, we see his problem with God. So David, other psalmists, acknowledge that even in a relationship with God, we can struggle with darkness, the hiddenness of God. And that is something that we must be honest about and even tell young Christians, new Christians, it's not just a sweet ride from here on out. There are struggles, and sometimes God allows the lights to go out for unknown reasons. That doesn't mean that he's not there or that he doesn't care, but when you feel that hiddenness, that just tells you how important the presence of God really is. Not only does he have a problem with God, there's a problem with himself. He has a problem with himself. He says, I, I struggle with my thoughts. I take counsel in my heart. I have sorrow in my heart daily. And it's, it's almost like he's just analyzing, analyzing all the time. 
There's no book for him with an answer. There's no author or motivational speaker on YouTube that has the answer for him. Other people read and they find answers, but he can't find the trick to the puzzle. He can't figure it out, and he can find no way out. I remember watching a short film about a woman trapped in a dark corridor. She sees light through an open door at the end of this hallway far away, and then she runs to it, and as she's running towards it, she's almost there, but then the door keeps rushing away from her in a nightmare scene. She feels trapped before an open door, and she can't get out. That's a problem with yourself. Sometimes we just don't find an answer, and it seems like one is tantalizingly close, but we can't get to it. And then he says, I also have a problem from an outside enemy. There is somebody out there, and of course David had a lot of enemies, and he was a wartime king. That's all he knew. And he did not want his enemies to have the upper hand. One, another commentator on the psalm here, Plummer, says, This enemy, though, could be any foe, visible, invisible, human, or diabolical. And for us, in this age, I would even say viral. Sometimes there's just foes that come. They surround us and besiege us. Uh, we were having a leadership meeting just the other day, and we were praying together, and this prayer rose up in me to say, God, please deliver us from this virus. Deliver our nation. Deliver our people from this enemy. And it felt strange because very few times have we had to pray, and at least in my lifetime, deliver us because we've had it pretty good. But this cry is a common cry from human hearts throughout history. And so the first two verses start off pretty dark. I think one thing we can learn here is that God does not mind honest cries from the heart, honest descriptions of our state before him. In fact, that's the best thing we can do. He does allow the lights to go out. That's why the book of Job is in the Bible. This is real life. And so he has a problem with God, a problem with himself, a problem with the outside enemy. The second division of the psalm is verses 3 and 4. This is the cry of the heart. The prayer shifts gears here. The first two verses are almost accusatory to God, but then verses 3 and 4 become just an outcry, a plead for help. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. He says, enlighten my eyes. This is a person whose eyes have gone dark. He's broken. A plumber, in, you know, remember he's writing in the 1800s, so the language is old. But he, he paraphrases it, cause mine eyes to shine. To have that peculiar luster which evinces health, gladness, and confidence. Uh, we might say after famous boxing movies, Lord, I just want the eye of the tiger. I just want, give me back the eye of the tiger. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him. Don't let my enemy rightly say he's toast. I don't want to go down and I don't want them to be happy about it. This is somebody who has lost his inner reserve. There's nothing left in the tank. Sometimes as a parent, I would want to encourage my children, especially when they got discouraged or or felt bad that their plans have changed. Something comes along and kneecaps their plans, and, and life always kneecaps your plans. Dads are cool. They know what to say, how to say it, when to say it. There are no such things as lame dad statements. So I would come along and say, children, 
You have to find that inner trampoline and bounce back. And of course they knew the depth of that wisdom and they were so grateful to hear it. But somebody may say, what if there's no bounce? There's no give. There's nothing at the bottom but solid concrete. That's why the psalmist says, God, I need your help lest I sleep the sleep of death. There's a famous screenwriting book out called Save the Cat, and one guy was writing about how movies take different turns, or there are different points in a movie or points in a story, and one of them is the all is lost moment. And Corey Mills, commenting on this book, Save the Cat, said the all is lost moment is powerful because it is primal. It reaches down into the core of our beings and takes what we fear in our lives and makes those things real. We need to see the character hurting in some way because that is what connects us with because that is what connects with us on a primal level. He's talking about writing stories that engage an audience. He said, as my seven-year-old daughter and I have gone to movies, she began to notice this as well. We discussed it and I explained the all is lost moment as a time when things are the are the worst for the main character. Soon she began picking them out herself. In Frozen, for example, Anna is told by her prince her supposed one true love, that no one could ever love her, and then he leaves her to freeze to death. What child wouldn't find that prospect horrifying? It's a primal fear that sits in the back of everyone's mind. Writers are talking like this to one another, trying to figure out how to tell the best stories because they're trying to reflect life, because we feast off stories. We need stories. We need narratives. And Psalm 13 is a Holy Spirit-inspired, all-is-lost moment, because there are times in real life when we do experience those moments. Blake Snyder, who wrote the book Save the Cat, speaks of the all-is-lost moment, saying that it has to have the whiff of death in some respect. All good primal stories must have the whiff of death. It resonates for a reason, unquote. He, he's, he's paralleling the Psalms. Lord, help me lest I sleep the sleep of death. This resonates for a reason because the best writers try to have their stories resonate with real life. And real life has real suffering. Suffering that even touches the writers of Scripture. The Bible is raw, unvarnished, authentic, and emotionally expressive. After these first four verses, Psalm 13 takes a turn. Even though the, the writer finds no bounce within, there's no force within, there's no great power within that, that he can tap into when he looks inside. But if he looks up and he looks out, he sees something even better. It's called the favor of God, verses 5 and 6. I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is mercy that turns him, that lifts him. It was Matthew Henry, I think, that said, nothing is more killing to a soul than the want of God's favor. Nothing more reviving than the return of it. Trusting God, trusting his mercy, that's just the essence of life. Every problem we have at some level boils down to whether we're gonna trust God or not. That means relinquish control, that means rest in his hand and trust him like a child because his mercy is there, it's real. There's a little story in Matthew when Jesus was having a meal at Matthew's house. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, 
What does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God's heartfelt desire is to be merciful, not just to have religious systems. And then Jesus finishes off by saying, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came for us. He came for us who need mercy. Jesus took the deepest, darkest, all is lost moment on himself. He rolled up all of those moments of every suffering in human history and took them on himself. He also rolled up all the pain and suffering of eternity, of an eternity without God. The truest experience of God's hiddenness resulting from our rejection of him, and he took it on himself. He took our sin, our suffering, and our punishment. It's a mercy that is stronger than death. It's a mercy that reverses death and gives hope of eternal life. His death was a mercy. His burial was a mercy. His resurrection was a victory. And it is a mercy and victory that we can trust in. And so we can sing and we can rejoice because God has dealt bountifully with us. Our time of prayer will be led by Dave Ford. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for who you are and what you mean in our lives. Thank you for this body, Father, that even though we're separated during this time, that we are together in spirit. Father, and we can come to you, maybe not corporately, but individually, to seek your guidance. Father, and I pray for our body, for the members that even though we're a distance apart, that we're together in spirit. Father, I pray also for our leaders in the county, leaders at the state level and leaders in Washington. Father, I pray for wisdom, for discernment on their part. I pray for the first responders who are the first line dealing with people in hospitals, dealing with people in law enforcement, dealing in, with people in emergency situations. I pray for them, to bless them, protect them, Father. And I pray for all those that are sick, Father, that they would have a sense of comfort in knowing you, Father, and that they are being cared for appropriately. And Father, bless the families of those that have lost family members in a period of grief and pain and suffering. Comfort them. Father, thank you for the words recorded in Scripture that we can go and, and see where you give strength, you give wisdom, you give discernment for those that ask. And we ask for that. Bless this church today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>